going to look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, we thank you so much for who you are and for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die for our sins. When we explore a story like this, we, we wrestle with how normative the experience Well, there is something that is consistent for all, that we're born into this world in sin, and we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus exclusively for our salvation. For some, it's been a quiet, others a highly visual, dramatic experience. But one and all share that same need to be able to say with full assurance, I know Jesus, he's my Savior, he's my Lord. So, Father, as we explore these verses now, we pray that you would again warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. We've come here now once again to see Jesus and and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Niemöller was a man who stood strong for Jesus in the midst of Nazi Germany. He, along with a fellow pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, were involved in being able to make statements with regard to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in a political time period in which the gospel was being distorted by the political systems of that day. He was incarcerated, as was Bonhoeffer, for their faith. But subsequent to that, he, Niemöller, was on a speaking tour where he made this statement that has resonated within my heart, within my mind, within my soul through the years ever since I was first introduced to this statement. Niemöller said, It took me a long time to understand that God is not the enemy of my enemies. And furthermore, God is not even necessarily the enemy of his enemies. What you and I find when we're exploring now this but God story is that there are incredible oppositional issues involved at stake here. We're going to have to explore these together. And what I want to do with you this morning is to be able to draw out two what I will call relational changes. Relational changes which occur when one has truly put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And the first comes out of verse 1 down to verse 9, and we're going to put it like this, that as a result of conversion, I want you to first of all note with me the new relationship that we have with God's Son. Now, we're going to explore that as we evaluate what's happening here with Saul, later to be known as the Apostle Paul. But you dig in and just simply note that there's something that has been happening up until this point in verses 1 and 2. 
We are informed, but saw still, mark that word, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound, you see, bound to Jerusalem. Now look very carefully at what he has here, Luke the physician, who's penned this at this point, this thought, and notice that it starts with, but Saul still breathing threats and murder. And you ask yourself the onset, well, how long has this been going on? What are the issues? How extensive as well as how intensive has this been? If you have your Bible, flip back a couple of pages and notice that there was a man by the name of Stephen who went out on a limb to be able to share his testimony that he had put his faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And you and I are informed in Acts 7.58, then they cast him out of the city. And what did they do? They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now God does not waste our experiences on us. He invests our experiences for us. How will this impact Saul on the road to Damascus? He has watched as this man, in the face of opposition, stood strong for Jesus. And furthermore, you and I are informed here that as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You cannot cry out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, if Jesus is still dead. He is making an implicit yet powerful statement that Christ is the risen Savior. Would a man do this if Christ were still in the grave? Would such risks be worth it? These are questions now. Questions that a brilliant man like Saul has got to be able to address. As Stephen's clothing is being laid before Saul, shades of what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ, where his garments were being divvied up, you see, by, by the soldiers. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, this was heard, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Again, recalling the words of his Savior, into thy hands I commit my spirit. You see the impact of the cross of Christ upon the soul of Saul. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Christ would have cried out. And you and I see here how 
the cross of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, has direct bearing upon the way in which Stephen is approaching this crucial issue in his life. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. God in his sovereign purposes allowed for these words to be uttered before Stephen died. So that Saul, among others, would have to grapple with the realities of this testimony. The early church had a tremendous opportunity of hitting the streets running with the gospel of Jesus Christ because would people be willing to lay down their lives for a lie? Lay down their lives for one who was in a grave? But if he is risen from the grave, and if he is then who he claimed to be, then you can stand strong in the face of the oppositional forces of life. What does this do to a Saul later known as Paul? As the garments are laid at his feet. Initially, Saul wouldn't allow this to detour him. Because in chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. This is the sort of man you and I are about to bump into on that Damascus road. But we're told there was... There arose in chapter 8, verse 1 on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. What I want you to see here is that in God's sovereign purposes, he was using Saul prior to Saul's conversion to get the gospel out. Because of his role in persecution, people were going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. He hadn't even come to know the Lord yet, and yet the gospel was going out, you see, because God is sovereign and the souls of this world are not. As it's sometimes said, you allow Acts 1 to interpret Acts 8.1. Jesus said, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but as Becky Pippert said, you've got to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. Of all people, God is using this oppositional force, Saul, to get the gospel out into the world, even though Saul simultaneously is trying to thwart it. You see the sovereignty of God here? Meanwhile, in verse 2, devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul, in what's interesting in chapter 8, verse 3, the Greek word here for ravaging the church It's the same word used to describe an animal attacking its prey. It's an animalistic description. He's entering house after house, dragged off women, men and women, and committed them to prison. That's what stands behind now, what's occurring here. And God does not God does not waste experiences. God invests experiences. That stands behind that little word still. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. Why? What he wants to do is to get what we'll call extradition papers so that he would be able to take people who were 
loyal to Christ and removed them from Damascus, about 150 miles away from Jerusalem, about a week's journey, and returned them to Jerusalem to be tried. So he asked in verse 2 for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, but I want you to see what comes next. If you're using a, a, a Bible such as I'm holding, underline what comes next. A device, find a way to, uh, to highlight it. So that if he found any belonging to the way, mock that, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Before believers were known as Christians, they were known as the way. Consistent with what John had penned regarding Jesus' statement in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The way. Mr. Sproul, the philosophy professor asked Darcy Sproul, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? I gasped as I felt the weight of her question and knew that every eye in the room was on me. My mind raced for a way to escape my dilemma. I knew that if I said yes, people would be angry, and at the same time I knew if I said no, I'd be betraying Jesus. Finally, I said, yes, I do. And the teacher responded with unmitigated fury. And she said in front of the whole class, that's the most narrow-minded, bigoted, and arrogant statement I've ever heard. You must be a supreme egotist, Sproul, to believe that your way is the only way. Assumption. As if it's Sproul's way that's the only way. Always challenge assumptions. Continue on. After the class was dismissed, I went to speak with my professor. In the conversation, I tried to explain why I believed that Christ was the only way. I asked her if she thought that it was at least theoretically possible that Christ be one way to God. Good way. That's a good start, you see. You've got to find your on-ramp in the traffic of conversation. I asked her if she thought that it was at least theoretically possible that Christ be one way to God, and she allowed the possibility. I asked if she thought it were possible that without being narrow-minded or bigoted, a person could come to believe that Jesus was God. And though she did not believe in the deity of Christ, she recognized that people could in fact believe that without being bigoted, then I explained to her that the reason I believe that Christ was the only way to God is because Christ himself taught it, not because I simply believe it. I reminded her that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. I also pointed out that the New Testament refers to Christ as the only begotten of the Father and that there is no other name under heaven through which men can be saved. Acts 4.12, I said to her, do you feel the tension? Can you see that I'm torn between loyalty to Christ while living in this modern spirit of pluralism? Do you see that it is possible for me to believe in the uniqueness of Christ because he taught it? The conversation continued, but it ended with this question. 
she said, how can you believe in a God who only, who only allows one way to himself? We've addressed this issue through the years, haven't we? Because the question is not, why is there only one way? The question is, why should there be any way? God owes us no way. But the very fact that he provides a singular way speaks about him and his grace, while at the same time addresses us in our sinfulness. This is true not because we believe it, This is true because what he taught it. It's true because of who he is and therefore what he taught. People grapple with that in a pluralistic culture with a high premium on tolerance. But you see here, what in verse 2 tells us is that with letters of extradition in hand, His purpose was that he found any belonging to underline it the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But in the issues of tolerance and truth, remind yourself once again that the issue here is this. There is to be equal toleration, but not equal validity in these claims. Equal toleration does not mean equal validity. So now in verse 3, spot the tension right after stating that he's out to pursue any belonging to the way. Note the brilliant irony of this physician, Luke, as he continues to write in verse 3, now as he went on his way. Oh, that's good. Notice now he approached Damascus. Saw did. What we are told of next is that as he approached Damascus in verse 3, suddenly, suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. Saul, later known as the Apostle Paul, would never forget this. Because among his autobiographical statements, is that found in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So now God breaks in. And in verse 4, we find Luke the physician writing, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saw, saw, 
why are you persecuting me? First and foremost, notice who takes the initiative. It is not Saul shouting out, God, God. This is God using Saul's name not once, but twice. Now that's an attention grabber if there's one. You think you're doing something for God, and God's about to do something for you, and you're at cross-purposes. You ever been at cross-purposes with God? Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, now there's the verbal side, after the visual side of light, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not only have you noted the initiative in verse 4, that it's God's. Notice that the first words are not in the form of an exclamation point delivered by God. It's in the form of a question being posed by God. Never overlook the questions of Scripture. They're brilliant. It's the way by which we can verbally navigate in a culture that's highly pluralistic. Challenging people to rethink their assumptions and presuppositions. But furthermore, not only have you noted the divine sovereignty that's found there in verse 4, and second of all, the critical question posed there in verse 4, notice furthermore, thirdly, the connectedness found there in verse 4. He doesn't ask why are you persecuting the way? Does he? Do you see the incredible, intense connectedness between God and his people? How intensely connected he is with you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That what happens to you affects him? Why are you persecuting me? He asks. This is deep. You've spotted three significant elements in that verse. The initiative, the question, and the connection. What I want you to see is that Saul responds not with an exclamation point. He answers the question with a question. But he does not answer with regard to the why. Why are you persecuting me? He answers the why with the who. Who are you? But then it doesn't stop there. There's a comma, not a period, right? In your Bible? Who are you? Comma. Oh, this is good. Lord. And notice the response. This is ground shaking. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Hadn't Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus? 
received my spirit as his clothing was parked at Saul's feet, implying resurrection? Now, if I understand my geography accurately and the topography as well, Saul would have had to pass the area that Jesus would have been crucified to make his way 150 miles northward to Damascus. And now he's got the risen Savior speaking directly to him, and he's got to deal with the implications of the one who said, I am the way, as it relates to those he's attempting to persecute, who are known as the way, and lo and behold, the way lives. The grave is empty. And their courage is based upon the fact that there is a vacancy sign hanging over that tomb, you see. He has to address the reality and the practical issues of the fact that Christ is alive. This is transformative in the way in which you approach life. Remember the story of Blandon Churchyard? It's where Winston Churchill's buried. Some of our family members have been there, walked past it. Over the lynch gate at Blandon are these words, I know that my Redeemer liveth. But what's interesting is that you don't read those words upon entering. You read those words upon leaving. as you go back out on the streets of London. Now, Saul's got to address the fact the risen Savior's talking and not once but twice has used his name. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But now you make your way to verse 6. But rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. In other words, God doesn't dump the complete load of information all at one time upon Saul's feet. There is going to be an incremental process that's got Saul continuously leaning forward, wondering, what's next? What's coming my way? God does that with you, you know. He provides enough information to get you through the day, and there will be more information to come tomorrow as you follow God's headlights in the darkness of the roads of life. When the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, they heard it, but seeing no one. There's drama here. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. What fascinates me at this point is what comes next. He was intending to lead people from Damascus to Jerusalem. Instead, the one who had left Jerusalem is being led to Damascus. 
the one whose intent was to be a captor of Christians is the one who is now captive to Christ. Do you see the dramatic reversals? They brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. What God does when he utilizes that threefold approach, you see here, to get people to ask questions with regard to the questions he's posing them, personalized. What God does is he creates a sense of dependency. And when he creates a sense of dependency, then he exposes new realms of vulnerabilities. They are, Saul's vulnerable. What will the people in Damascus do to me? I can't see. I thought I was going there to be the captor, and here I am captive. Paul Stanley writes from Colorado Springs. As an infantry company commander in Vietnam, I saw Viet Cong soldiers surrender many times. As they were placed in custody and marched away, briefly interrogated, their body language and facial expressions always caught my attention. Most hung their heads in shame, staring at the ground, unwilling to lock their cap look their captors in the eye. There's irony there. But some stood erect, staring defiantly at those around them, resisting any attempt by our men to control them. They had surrendered physically, but not mentally. On one occasion, after the enemy had withdrawn, I came upon several soldiers surrounding a wounded Viacong. Shot through the lower leg, he was hostile, frightened, yet helpless. He threw mud and kicked with his one good leg when anyone came near him. When I joined the circle around the wounded enemy, <coughs> one soldier asked me, sir, what should we do? He's losing blood fast. He needs medical. I looked down at the struggling Viet Cong and saw the face of a 16-year-old boy. I unbuckled my pistol, belt, and hand grenades so he could not grab them. And then, speaking gently, I moved toward him. He stared fearfully at me as I knelt down, but he allowed me to slide my arms under him and pick him up. As I walked with him toward a waiting helicopter, he began to cry and hold me tight. He kept looking at me and squeezing me tighter. We climbed into the helicopter and took off. During the ride, our young captive sat on the floor, clinging to my leg. Never having ridden in a helicopter, he looked down with panic as we gained altitude and flew over the trees. He fixed his eyes back on me, and I re smiled reassuringly, and I, I put my hand on his shoulder. After landing, I picked him up, walked toward the medical tent. And as we crossed the field, I felt the tenseness leave his body, his tight grasp loosen, his eyes soften, his head leaned against my chest. The fear and resistance were gone. He had finally surrendered. 
And now you find Saul surrendering his will to the risen Savior. One who knows a lot about conversion, Billy Graham, wrote, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. What I want you to see here now is that this relationship with God has been reversed. And as a result of conversion, you see here first the new relationship we have with God's Son. But now, secondly, as it appears on the screen, I want you to notice, secondly, the new relationship we have with God's people. The new relationship you have with God's Son is what I'll call the vertical relationship of conversion. The new relationship you have with God's people is what I call the horizontal relationship. And notice the implications here. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. I view him as one of the great heroes in church history. He's about to do something that's not going to be viewed by the thousands. He's going to go one-on-one in the privacy of discipleship before God with Saul. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, God's multitasking here. He's dealing with Saul, but now he's dealing with Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he's got a way with words. He's got a way with names. Of course, he's only got to use Ananias' name once here. He had to use twice on Saul. Well, he said, here I am, Lord, shades of what Isaiah would have said in Isaiah chapter 6. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Now, if you do a geographical analysis today of Damascus, what you will find to this very day is that there's a street called Straight that runs east-west. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now, I want you to put yourself in Ananias' sandals. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? If you are a believer, chances are you heard that Saul was a coming. How would you have been praying? Chances are you've been praying for yourself and for your family and your loved ones and your friends in the realm of self-protection. Would you have been praying not for self-protection, but Saul's conversion? Would that have occurred to you? Now, God says to Ananias, Rise and go. He's got a way with this whole issue of rise and goes. He's going to take the street called Straight. There's irony there. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man called Ananias. And I got to imagine Ananias is saying, why did you put my name into that vision? But God is the great connector of people, you see. God puts us in the intersections of life and creates intervention in the midst of the intersection. Has this been your experience as you're nearing one of the major airports, one of the major cities in the world? As you get closer and closer to the runway, you're able to look out a window and you see traffic. And you see the highways, and you see the traffic flow, and you see the intersections, and you've got a different vantage point altogether. Have you considered the intersection of Stephen's life with Saul prior to conversion? And now the intersection of Ananias' life at conversion and subsequently, the intersection of Barnabas' life with Saul post-conversion. And you see full-spectrum discipleship unfolding in front of your very eyes there because God doesn't simply use one person to take Saul from before to the point of conversion and subsequent to. He's using various people along the way. And for some of those for whom you're praying... God right now might be utilizing an Ananias. And for others, he might be using a Stephen to get that person to an Ananias. And still others, he's using a Barnabas, but it needed a, a Stephen and Ananias to get to a, a Barnabas. But it's still the Saul factor, you see. And it's the sovereign one over the Sauls of this world. No matter how defiant Saul was, the issue is not how defiant Saul was, but how sovereign God is. And so, it's natural. I mean, Ananias is human. But Ananias answered, Lord, there in verse 13. Move on to verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. It's out on the streets. How much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. In verse 14, and here he has authority. Authority from the chief priests. To bind. That was what Saul intended to do. To bind all who call on your name. Track the usage of the word name throughout the book of Acts. Here's your but God moment. Ironically, it is God and a believer. Notice how it reads. It's italicized. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Who'd have thunk? Not the sort of one you and I would normally pick to have high impact. 
But in God's sovereign purposes, he does choosings far outside of the box. He's a creative sovereign, he is. For I will show him in verse 16 how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And meanwhile, you and I are thinking about Niemöller. It took me a long time to understand that God is not the enemy of my enemies. And that God is not necessarily even the enemy of his enemies. And then you think of a Lincoln who during the U.S. Civil War, when hatred had become entrenched between the North and the South, was criticized for speaking of benevolent treatment of the Southern rebels. And the critic reminded Lincoln there was a war going on and the Confederates were the enemy. And Lincoln wisely responded when the man wanted him to destroy the enemies. Quote, I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. And Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And if you're Ananias, what do you do with that? Now, if he goes to Saul, how will his family view this? If he goes to Saul, how will the believers in Damascus view this? Are you switching sides, Ananias? Are you going to betray us? Are you going to turn us over? Whose side are you on anyways? The real question is, will Ananias function consistently as being on God's side? Do you function that way? So now, what do you do? You got your vertical and your horizontal dimensions of conversion operating simultaneously. So you pick it up in verse 17. In verse 17, Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. doesn't say he got his hands on him. Laying his hands on him, I want you to notice the first words that Saul hears. Brother Saul. doesn't say Saul. He says, Brother Saul. And in his book, Born Again, Chuck Colson said with these few words that morning, while the briny sea churned, came a sureness of mind that matched the depth of my feeling in my heart. There came something more, strength, serenity, a wonderful new assurance about life, a fresh perception of myself and the world around me. I felt old fears, tensions, animosities draining away. I was coming alive to things I had never seen before, as if God was filling the barren void I'd known for so many months, filling it to its brim with a whole new kind of awareness. I wrote Tom Phillips, telling him of the step I had taken, 
of my gratitude for his loving concern, asked his prayers for the long and difficult journey I sensed lay ahead. Phillips had led him to saving faith. Don Cole was working furthermore to guide him in growing in faith. But what do you do when people of the way look at you somewhat skeptically? Are you really one of us? That was the question being asked in Washington, D.C. about Colson. But then he's asked to join a, a little fellowship gathering. Boy, was he uncomfortable. But he shares his testimony with a political opponent, and I mean opponent. Harold Hughes is sitting there. As he says, that night with Tom Phillips broke down some kind of lifelong barrier, yet I had to wonder the next day if all Washington unpleasantness had left me so shell-shocked, I can say it, you know, that I was just looking for a way out. Any way out. But I was really able to see who Jesus is, I told them, and my need for him, and that I gave my life to him. And just saying those words brought the emotion back, and I choked up for a minute. As a new Christian, I then shared, this was his first testimony. As a new Christian, I have everything to learn. I know that I am grateful for any help that you can give me. I call what comes next the Damascus Fellowship. For a moment there was silence, and then Harold Hughes, whose face had been enigmatic while I talked, suddenly lifted both hands in the air, brought them down hot on his knees. That is all I need to know, Chuck. You have accepted Jesus. He has forgiven you. I do the same. I forgive you. I love you now as my brother. Shades of Ananias. In Christ, I will now stand with you, defend you anywhere, trust you with anything I have. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. As now the vertical and horizontal dimensions connect and a Niemöller's words echo in our hearts it took me a long time to understand that God is not the enemy of my enemies and that God is not necessarily even the enemy of his enemies because the but God moments of life transform us you'll never be the same again Stand for prayer. If there is someone here this morning in the second service who finds himself or herself in that pre conversion state, use the Stevens of their life to speak testimony into their soul. If there's someone right on the verge, bring an Ananias into their life.
call him brother or sister. If we're beginning to grow and move forward in the faith, bring a Barnabas, the son of encouragement, into that life. So we can keep on keeping on. This is full-spectrum discipleship. Various strategic people at the intersections of our lives. And the interruption of life's really intervention in life. But God breaks in. So if there's one in this service that has not put faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they've got a Saul-type hardness at this point, speak to that heart. You sent Jesus to die for their sins. May they put faith and trust now in Jesus. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the but God moments of life. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.